across the board, you're seeing industrial metal prices come back to their long-term average, come back to where they were before the Russian invasion of Ukraine and before the pandemic. So you're seeing this big retreat in battery metal prices. But you're also seeing, I mean, oil has come down, but it's still 86, 87, and gas is still relatively expensive. So you still have that tailwind, plus the headwind that was there of rising battery cost is now turning into a tailwind of falling battery costs. So what was a series of price hikes across the electric vehicle spectrum in 2022, I think could become a series of price reductions across the electric vehicle spectrum in 2023. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how was your long weekend? Uh, dude, it is. Southern California has this massive heat wave going on right now. I, I've spent 27 years in Southern California, and I have never felt heat like this. It was 100 <laughs> at the coast. It was 110, not 110, like 105 inland. It was, it, it's been miserable. So normally <laughs> Labor Day weekend is this fabulous time in San Diego, but we are weather wussies down here. So with, <laughs> with 95 and 100 flashing on the screens, uh, it was, it was not a, a fantastic weekend. Having said that, I saw a lot of fun with the family, went to a water park, had some good time. So, um, you know, got to brave, brave through the weather and, and continue to enjoy life. Gotcha. Sounds awesome. And I'm looking forward to getting into our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, electric vehicles, cryptocurrencies, the metaverse, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. A ton of things we want to talk about today. So kicking it off, we're going to talk about EVs again. You know, the markets have been struggling recently, and some of your favorite EV stocks have actually shown some very impressive resilience in the sell-off. Uh, one of that comes to mind is Rivian. Can you explain why these EV stocks are outperforming in the ugly tape? And, you know, is it going to continue? Uh, sure, Aaron. Yeah, so the whole energy trade has continued to be very strong, um, relatively speaking. Everything from natural gas, oil, uranium, uh, clean tech, solar, energy storage, electric vehicles. And I think the whole clean energy side of that, a big driver of the alpha is the fact that remember in early 2022 there was this huge thing about higher gas costs are going to push people into electric vehicles because mm -hmm. driving gas car becomes more expensive but then the flip side of that coin was well the russian invasion of ukraine caused critical battery metal prices to go significantly higher cobalt nickel lithium the prices of those metals soared in the aftermath of the russian invasion of ukraine so it's kind of like yes gas prices are higher but electric vehicle costs are also higher and you saw a subsequent 
round of price hikes from Rivian, from Lucid, from Tesla uh, on mm-hmm. their entry model electric vehicles and even on their, on their more premium model electric vehicles too. So, you know, you, you got that gas cost driver, but it was unable to realize its full potential because of the rising cost of electric vehicles. And yet still, despite the rising cost of electric vehicles, EV sales are up something like 50, 55, 60% year over year, year to date in 2022. So even with that big rise in battery metal costs, you still saw robust adoption of electric vehicles this year. Now, all of a sudden, those rising battery metal costs are becoming falling battery metal costs. Cobalt, for example, those prices have retreated back to their five-year average. Nickel, the price of nickel has retreated back to its five-year average. Lithium, still above its five-year average. But across the board, you're seeing industrial metal prices come back to their long-term average, come back to where they were before the Russian invasion of Ukraine and before the pandemic. So you're seeing this big retreat in battery metal prices. But you're also seeing, I mean, oil has come down, but it's still 86, 87, and gas is still relatively expensive. So you still have that tailwind, plus the headwind that was there of rising battery cost is now turning into a tailwind of falling battery costs. So what was a series of price hikes across the electric vehicle spectrum in 2022, I think could become a series of price reductions across the electric vehicle spectrum in 2023. Price reductions on top of the already robust momentum you're seeing in the electric vehicle space sets the stage for EVs to have an even better 2023 than they did in 2022. And that's great timing for a stock like Rivian, for a stock like Lucid, because 2022, they weren't really going to ever produce that many cars. They're just mm. getting started. 23, they're going to start ramping a little bit more. 24, ramping a lot more. 25, ramping significantly. So like they're in the early innings of a ramp. If all of a sudden the macro backdrop shifts more in favor of them as they accelerate on this ramp, that's going to really, really help their sales and really, really help their margins. And that is a situation where I think electric vehicle stocks like Rivian, like Lucid, can do really well over the next 12 months. So I think – Excitement about that is what is allowing Rivian, for example, to perform much better than the broader markets in the current environment. So I think that explains why they're outperforming. And it also explains why that outperformance should persist for the next six to 12 months. We're still very bullish on Rivian, still very bullish on Lucid. I think the whole EV space has a lot of upside over the next 12 months. So everything you said makes total sense as to why that sector is performing well right now. But again, when you look at the market as a whole, what is, can you kind of go into a little bit more as why it's resilient against some, what we're seeing in the trends in the market right now? Um, so yeah, I mean, like I said, the trends in the market right now are that inflation is a problem. The Fed's going to kill it. And we're worried about what type of, damage is going to be done in the Fed killing inflation. I, I think the markets move past fears of inflation. I think they're pretty convinced that the Fed's going to shoot it and kill it. And now mm-hmm. the concern is, okay, in shooting inflation, it's a shotgun, basically. So there's going to be collateral <laughs> damage. How big is that collateral damage going to be? Mm-hmm. And so that that's where the fears are. And I think the strength in electric vehicle stocks is un, – is, um, emphasized by this idea 
that even if the Fed slows the economy meaningfully, there is mm-hmm. still going to be strong demand for electric vehicles in 2022, 2023, driven by a shift in consumer preference, driven by the fact that auto purchases, yes, they are cyclical, but people still need cars, and driven by the whole climate bill that introduces a new tax credit for used electric vehicles, extends tax credits for another 10 years on electric vehicles, removes the cap for big auto producers like Tesla. Um, So I, I think that there's a lot of belief and momentum around the belief that the electric vehicle space is due for resilient growth over the next 12 months, even if the economy Mm -hmm. gets very wobbly. Gotcha. Um, On the other side of that energy coin, you know, we have oil and, you know, listeners of our podcast obviously know your feelings about oil. Uh, You know, you've been short on oil, but the rumor has it is that you may have told your subscribers to just close that position and book gains. Is that true? Uh, yeah. So last last week or two weeks ago, um, we told our subscribers, "Hey, we you know we came out here and said short oil when it was above 120 because that made absolutely no sense, and everyone was saying 150, 200, mm-hmm. and we called uh, BS on that, and we said short oil, and yeah, it collapsed down to 85, and we're like, all right, I think it's time to." Time to, to take the take the profits. And the reason we made that switch wasn't because I do think oil can head lower. I really do. And I, okay. I think it will head lower. But the big risk is Saudi Arabia. That the Saudis came in and basically threw their weight around and said, we decide the market. They didn't like that the fact they didn't like the fact that the price of oil was collapsing from 120 to 110 to 100 to 90 to 85, and it looked like oil was destined for 80, 75, 70, 65, so on and so forth. So they came in and said, "Nah, uh-uh, we're gonna do production cuts if this persists. If the selling in oil persists, if oil prices continue to drop, we're going to start executing production cuts and tighten up the supply in the market to get oil prices higher. Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. is the mothership of oil production. They do control a large portion of the supply. If they decide to cut, that means supply gets tight. That means prices stay high. So remove them from the equation. And I think oil goes to 65 by the end of the year. But with mm-hmm. them in the equation, you have a wild card risk here. Are they actually mm-hmm. going to cut production? If so, oil prices will stay range bound between 85 and 100, and they're just going to bounce. If they don't cut production, you could go below 80, 75, 70, 65. Right now, I'm not in the game of predicting what the Saudis are going to do. I have no idea. It was a total shocker to me that in the midst of what everyone is calling a global oil supply shortage, the biggest Mm -hmm. producer is talking about a production cut. That was a shocker. Mm -hmm. That was completely out of left field. So because of that action, I think the predictability and visibility into the actions of Saudi Arabia over the next six to 12 months in this oil market there's a really low visibility. That lack mm-hmm. of visibility concerns me when it comes to loudly proclaiming my thesis that oil is going to 65. So we mm-hmm. had that oil drop from 125 to 85. Felt like a good time to just profit take with the wild card risk back on the table. Because again, like I said, I don't know what the Saudis are going to do. They could either do production cuts and stabilize oil or not do production cuts and oil falls. I don't know what's going to happen. Either way, I don't think 
100% don't think that oil is going to go back to 120, 125, 130. I think that's out of the cards. The economy is too far down the recession path to have oil at those prices. Demand is too far destroyed. So we're not going there, but we could just be range bound. And if we're range bound, it's best to just take the profits and find opportunities elsewhere because I am seeing better opportunities in the market right now from a macro perspective. So short oil was great. It, we, we played that, made money off of it, take mm-hmm. the profits, move on to the next trade. I don't think that the risk reward makes a lot of sense at these current levels to be short oil when oil is what are we, $87 a barrel right now. I don't think the risk reward makes a ton of sense with the Saudis in the picture. So until Mm -hmm. there's visibility on that situation, profit take, get out, stay away, get some visibility, and then reassess at that point in time. But for now, let's uh, let's stay on the sidelines. You know, as much as the investment perspective of oil, you know, obviously shorting, you know, making investors money. But I think the, the question that a lot of people have is, you know, from the consumer standpoint is, you know, a gas prices like obviously they've been following mm-hmm. fall, uh, falling the last few months is are they going to with your thesis on what the Saudis are doing? Are we seeing that price hover around where we're at right now or could it potentially drop lower to, you know, pre crisis levels? I, I think the fall in gas prices more has to do with the United States pulling um, from the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Um, that Mm -hmm. we've been pulling from that and pulling from that and pulling from that and flooding, especially domestic supply uh, of oil. And that has really brought down gas prices. And I think that the government is going to continue to do that into the midterm elections. It's a political move. Uh, They want to keep Mm -hmm. gas prices low. So I think gas prices continue to head lower into the midterms. And after that, I think the direction of the economy and the strength of the consumer are going to determine where gas prices go. If the economy stays on pretty solid footing and the consumer stays pretty healthy, then gas prices will likely stabilize or go higher. But if we see further demand destruction, then you're going to see gas prices go lower. But I don't think the Saudi Saudi Arabia's comments have had much of an impact. They didn't have much of an impact or will have mm-hmm. much of an impact on gas prices right now. The gas price impact in the U.S. is because of the drawdowns of the SBR, which I think, again, will continue into the midterms. Okay, sounds good. Uh, You know, moving, shifting gears a little bit, uh, I, you know, into the actual economy like we're discussing, uh, you're still of the opinion that we're in for a recession. Um, But what about the labor market? It's still super strong. I mean, we just got the jobs report last Friday and we're still adding jobs. And categorically, that's not really the characteristics of a recession, is it? No, no, it's not. Yeah, the August jobs report was, I mean, it was strong. It added about 300,000 jobs. Um, It's the slower pace than than July. Uh, Unemployment rate ticked up, but it ticked up uh, because of higher labor participation rates. So that's not really like true unemployment. That's more just like there's more people unemployed because more people are now looking for work. Uh, So it was a pretty healthy jobs report. And yeah, I think that that underscores that the U.S. economy is not in a full-blown recession today. And it can't be with the labor market as healthy as it is. But what people kind of misunderstand about these jobs reports is the labor market is always a lagging indicator of the economy. It's not a leading indicator. The last thing Mm -hmm. to fall in an economic downturn is the labor market because that's the Mm -hmm. last thing employers want to do is fire people, right? I mean, you only if, if, if you're an employer of business, the last thing you do 
in a time of trouble. Mm-hmm. It's fire. That's the last thing you want to do. You know, you'll you'll cut costs on marketing. You'll you'll maybe reduce the 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 travel spend. You'll reduce the the entertainment spend. You'll you'll maybe cut your your Salesforce budget down. Maybe you'll, you'll cut your your trade desk budget down. Uh, maybe you'll downgrade the office. But the last thing you're going to do is fire people. You do, you'll do all those things before you fire people. So at the point companies start firing people is the point where things really got bad. You know, it's not where things are starting to get bad. It's when things finally got bad enough to the point where companies are firing people. So the labor market is a lagging indicator of economic health. All the leading indicators out there, the conference board's uh, composite leading economics indicator or leading economics in, leading uh, indicators index is really falling rapidly right now. And historically mm-hmm. speaking, if you kind of sh- if you graph the the LEI, the leading economics indi- economic indicators index, you graph the LEI with the jobs market, and you shift the LEI kind of six months. It's a six month leading indicator. They line up almost perfectly. And mm-hmm. when you do that, you start to see that, hey, labor market looks like it's about to collapse. You do the same thing okay. with credit. So you look, you look at the credit conditions in the market. Credit starting <clears> to <throat> tight. The credit markets are getting tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And with yields spark, or spiking the way that they have recently, they're getting only tighter. So credit markets are getting tighter. When credit markets get tighter, labor markets tend to fall. So the leading indicators of the late, you look at a, a business CEO surveys, you look at the ISM manufacturing surveys, services surveys. These are surveys of business leaders across America. They're very bearish. They're not good at all. You're seeing slower uh, order, your orders. You're seeing slower economic activity. You're seeing slower back or lower backlogs. You're seeing weaker activity across the board. So all of these leaders are saying stuff's not great right now. The leading economic mm-hmm. indicators index is saying stuff's not great right now. Credit's getting tighter. All of these things together strongly imply the labor market, a lagging indicator, is now about to fall. And I think that throughout the next few months, the labor market is going to go from creating jobs to destroying jobs. And it is that critical pivot, that very critical pivot, mm-hmm. which is going to be the moment at which the stock market enters a period of prolonged growth. Because when the job okay. market goes from creation to destruction, the Fed pivots from hawkish to dovish. That is a very critical turn. Mm-hmm. You have to understand the Fed is playing tough guy against inflation right now, but they're playing tough guy against inflation because they can play tough guy against inflation, right? The economy is is mm-hmm. pretty strong in terms of the labor market. The, at the end of the day, yeah. what, what matters to people is do I have a job? Do I have an income? Can I Do I have money coming in to put food on the table? So long as that's mm-hmm. true, everything else is noise. So, so long as that's true, the Fed can play tough guy against inflation. As soon as that's not true and people start losing their jobs, the Fed starts to feel really badly about that. And the Fed starts to get blamed for that. The Fed doesn't Mm -hmm. want to wear that blame. So as soon as we go from job creation to job destruction, the Fed goes from hawkish to dovish. And that's when the Mm -hmm. stock market recovers in a meaningful, meaningful way. So Mm -hmm. looking at the labor market, I see weakness ahead. That may sound scary, on Main Street, it is scary. On Wall Street, it will be a positive sign that a turning point has arrived for stocks, for the Fed, for monetary policy, and ultimately for the economy. Okay, so let's say you know 
like you say, the labor market catches up with everything else. It retracts. That's good for stocks. Um, and you've also been telling us that the number one thing that matters most is the 10-year Treasury yield. So what does a labor market collapse due to yields and, you know, subsequently stocks? Right, right. Yeah. So the 10-year Treasury yield is the most important number in finance right now. And that's because post-2008, the amount of stimulus the government and central bank injected into the economy, coupled with a prolonged period of low inflation due to simultaneously the demand destruction of 08 and the cost-cutting technologies that proliferated throughout the 2000, 2010s like the cloud uh, and automation. That led to a world of very low interest rates and very low inflation. And mm -hmm. in that world, treasury yields were very low. Treasury yields are used to benchmark valuation, stock valuation. So when treasury yields are really low, stock valuations can get really high. The market started to build its valuation on top of this period of low inflation, low interest rates from 2008 to 2021, basically. So for 13 years, and that's a long period of time, right? After two, three, four years, the market had not experienced massive PE multiple expansion until about 2015, 2016, 2017. Because of the first three, four, five, six years of this era, it was still just maybe a flash in the pan or, or fallout from 08. But once you start again to 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, you're now eight, nine, 10 years removed from 08. And people are starting to think, hey, maybe this is the new normal. Maybe the new normal is low interest rates, low inflation. So once they started to come around to thinking that this is the new normal, they started to price stocks as if this was the new normal. The P multiple average way back in the 80s, 90s, 70s, la -de -la -de -do, 14, 15, 16 times in the era of the 2010s, 2015 plus. 17, 18, 19 times, 20 times even. So you started to see a, a shift in valuations to a higher normal. We are at a critical point right now where inflation has come roaring back for the first time in 50 years. The Fed uh -huh. is hiking rates in a way they haven't since the 1980s, early 1980s. So you're seeing a shift in monetary policy and inflation, the drivers of these, the, these valuations. Is this a new era or is this a weird transition period after a once in a century pandemic, which <laughs> was accompanied by a once in a century move in monetary and fiscal policy? I don't know, right? That's the big mm -hmm. question on everybody's mind. So mm -hmm. the 10-year treasury yield is kind of like the benchmark for that. If the 10-year treasury yield keeps ticking higher and higher and higher and higher and higher, it goes from three, what, three, three, five now. We go to three, five, we go to three, seven, we go to four, we go to four, five, we go to five. If it keeps doing that, I can 100% guarantee you, Aaron, stocks are going to go way lower. All stocks, mm -hmm. they're going to get crushed. Because the fact okay. of the matter is all of these stocks are valued on the idea that treasury yields are going to stay in this two, three percent range. And if they break out of that, Everybody's everybody's multiple has to go lower. P multiples have to go from 18, 19, 20 times to 14, 15, 16 times, maybe even lower depending on how high, how high yields go. So you got to get this shift back 
to 80s, 90s valuation levels as opposed to mm-hmm. 2010s valuations levels, which is where we are today. But if treasury yields don't do that, if we go up to 3.5, test it, pull back, go to 3, go to 2.5, go to 2, stick around 2 for a while, then all of a sudden the valuation multiples can stay bloated. And stocks can go higher powered by earnings growth. So that's why we're at this like critical point in the game right now, the fork in the road, if you will. Either inflation is going to stay hot and the Fed's going to have to stay aggressive and yields are going to go higher and stocks are going to go way lower. Or inflation is going to fall. The Fed's going to take their foot off the gas. Yields are going to go lower and stocks are going to go way higher. It's one or the other. It's black or white. Which, you know, which, which uh, direction are we going to turn? That's the question on everyone's mind. That's why you're seeing such volatile trading. That's why you're seeing huge swings. I mean, today, for example, we opened up big. We dropped way lower. Then we rebounded (laughs) back in a positive territory. Then we dropped. Then we rebounded back in a positive territory. And now we're dropping again. We're all over the place. People don't know. This is all today. This is all today. People don't know which way they want to bid stocks right now. And so talk about that that June rally, the June, July, Mm -hmm. August rally in the stock market. It may end up I, – I still don't think it's a bear market rally. I do think that is, June is the low. But mm-hmm. it, it may end up being a bear market rally. And if it does, it speaks to the time. That was the best bear market rally ever. We have never seen a 50% Fibonacci retracement off the lows that turned into a bear that turned into lower lows later in the cycle. Never has mm-hmm. happened before. We've never seen that amount of breadth, 90% of stocks moving above their 50-day moving averages. We've never seen that amount of breadth in a bear market rally before. There were so many technical signals flashing saying this is not a bear market rally. This is a new bull market. So if this does end up being a bear market rally and the June lows mm-hmm. are not the lows, we break those in September October, whenever. I don't think that happens. But if it does, mm-hmm. it's a sign of the times. That was the best bear market rally of all time. The best head fake we've ever seen in a hundred years of the stock market. <laughs> and it's happening because people, excuse me, people don't know which way inflation is going to go, which way the Fed's going to go, which way yields are going to go. It's a very critical mm-hmm. time for stocks, a very critical moment in time. Either fortunes will be made or lost over the next 12 months, depending on the course of inflation, the course of Fed, and the course of yield. So that's why I keep saying, keep pounding the table, the most important number right now is the 10-year Treasury yield. The 10-year mm-hmm. Treasury yield will encapsulate the course of inflation and the course of the Fed into one number. If that number goes higher, stocks go lower. If that number goes lower, stocks go higher. It's that simple. We are hyper-focused on that right now. Okay, so then looking at that bullish side, let me get this straight. Slowing economy, falling inflation, lower yields – all of that sets the stage for a stock market rally into the end of the year. So I guess the question is, why aren't people buying into that rally right now? Uh, exactly what I'm, what I'm telling you right now. Everything I just said, Aaron, is mm. the answer to that question. That mm-hmm. there is – that's my thesis. Based on the mm-hmm. data I'm looking at, I yeah. see inflation falling dramatically over the next several months. I see mm-hmm. the Fed – Talking a tough talk right now, as soon as inflation comes down to 5%, 4%, 3%, that tough talk eases up dramatically. So I see falling inflation. I see a dovish evolution of the Fed over the next several months. And I see lower treasury yields. Based on those three things, I think stocks rally big into the end of the year. But if the other thing happens, inflation mm-hmm. doesn't fall. 
the Fed has mm-hmm. to stay super hawkish and yields go higher, then stocks collapse. The fear mm-hmm. of that outcome is so real. That's why people aren't buying into this rally. They want to see more okay. proof that inflation is falling. They want to see more proof that the Fed is willing to, to pivot dovish if inflation falls. They want to see more proof that yields have topped out. They're not seeing that proof. They saw that proof throughout June, July, and August. Inflation did top off. It looked like the Fed may be doing a dovish evolution. And then all of a sudden, some of that proof got eviscerated when Powell was like, no dovish pivot coming. So now people are resetting their expectations. And now it's back to a fear-based market where we need more proof that those three things are going to happen. Fortunately, I remain resolute and steadfast in the belief that we're going to get more proof on that front. I think the September CPI print due in a week is going to be Mm -hmm. very, very soft. I think it's going to be much softer than expected. It's going to show a rapid deceleration in inflation in the month of August from July. It's going to be multiple months of deceleration. I think you're going to see some dovish Fed commentary after that print. I think you're going to get a dovish Fed decision in the September FOMC. I think they still go 75 basis points, but I think that the commentary from Powell in the Q&A, in the press conference after that decision, will be quite dovish about the course of inflation. Given all that, I think that stocks do head higher over the next four weeks. But we got to get to that CPI print. And the fear that it's going to be super hot is what's causing the super chop. And I think that super mm-hmm. chop continues until we get more answers on the inflation, Fed, and yields front. We need answers there. Until we get answers, people aren't going to buy into this rally with high conviction. So whenever we have these discussions, I'm again, I'm always amazed at your knowledge base and how, uh, you know, all the research that you do, all the things that you look at, it just in the end, it makes sense. But people there's obviously going to be people that disagree along the way, not to belittle what they the research that they do or the, the insights that they have. But what, in your opinion, puts you in the right where bears in this situation might be wrong? Well, the bear thesis in a nutshell is inflation is embedded in the economy now. It's, it's structural, that it's not fleeting. Okay. Um, and mm-hmm. inflation is going to stick around and we're going to keep printing 5 6 7% for a while. And as a result of that, the Fed is going to keep hiking rates for a while and very aggressively at a very aggressive pace. And therefore, treasury yields are going to have to go from 3% to 4% to 5% or even higher. And in the event that they do that, P multiples have to come down from 20 times to 19, 18, 17, 16, 15 times. And earnings growth slows alongside that. So you get a 20, 25% compression in the P multiple with maybe a 10 to 20% drop in earnings. That leads to a 25, 30% drop in stocks. That's the bear thesis in a nutshell. And it all hinges, mm-hmm. as you noted in the logic I just laid out, it all hinges <laughs> on inflation. It all hinges yeah. on what inflation does. Is inflation structural or is inflation not structural? And for me, it comes down to one thing, technology. Mm-hmm. This is not the 1970s because we have technology. We have the internet. We have the cloud. We have automation. We have robots. We have globalization. We have so many disinflationary forces at our fingertips that they didn't have back literally literally out of fingers that they didn't have back in the 70s Mm -hmm. in the 70s they opened up their disinflation toolkit and it was empty now (laughs) we open up our disinflation toolkit and we have so many options 
If you're an employer and you're worried about costs, you're running a restaurant, you're worried about how much you're paying your servers, your waiters, what do you do in the 70s? You can't do anything. You really can't mm-hmm. do anything, right? You have to pay those people because you need waiters to wait on people. You need servers to serve people. You need a hostess lady to, ho- to or hostess person to host the, the restaurant. Now you can go and get a miso robot. You can go and get different robots to do things at the restaurant in place of that labor disinflationary mm-hmm. tool. Let's say you're an office, you're a business and you, your, your office costs right now, I mean, commercial rent and rent for everybody's is soaring right now. You, you can't mm-hmm. get rid of that office in 1973 because mm-hmm. you need a place for, for your employees to go to, to work together, to communicate. How else are you going to get work done today? If I'm a business and I'm not cutting it on, on rent costs, I'm slashing that. I'm just saying, okay, no office. We're all working remote. Ring Central, Zoom, um, uh, Slack. We, we can at Lagian sales. We, we can do this all remote. We don't need an office. Disinflationary tool. Boom, right there. So mm-hmm. there are so many technologies at our fingertips that we can use today to fight back against the inflation beast. That I really don't see how this becomes a structural, multi-year problem. I really don't. If it comes mm-hmm. to that point where it looks like it's really going to hit us hard, we're just going to start adopting these cost saving technologies hand over fist. And then if oil becomes a big problem, we're just going to adopt clean energy hand over fist. In the 1970s, we were a fossil fuel economy that mm-hmm. ride or die with oil, ride or die. There was no other alternative. Today, there's plenty of alternatives. Okay, now gas goes back to eight bucks a gallon. I'm time to get that EV. Oh, now my heating bills get 100, 200, 300 bucks a month. Ugh. Time to get some solar panels. You know, like we have alternative solutions today. And that's Mm -hmm. why I truly believe inflation is not structural. And that's the core of my thesis, that because Mm -hmm. of all of these alternatives, cost-cutting alternatives at our fingertips today that we did not have in the 70s, this is not a rerun to the 70s era inflation, but rather Mm -hmm. a period of weird transition time between, Mm -hmm. I mean, you just got to think about it, man, pandemic. Things just, the world shut down. How, Mm -hmm. remember seeing those weird photos of just Paris and New York and London, just Mm -hmm. empty, ghost, that's never happened before, ever. Not even during World War II, I mean, not even during Mm -hmm. wars, did that global wars did that happen before. It's never happened Mm -hmm. before where the world shut down. It's not odd that two years after that, we're seeing inflation like we've never seen before since the 1970s that we're seeing that the monetary policy or the fiscal policy that we're seeing it's not weird weird events cause for weird responses and have mm-hmm. weird consequences that's it it's this weird transition period fortunately i really believe we're getting to the seventh eighth ninth inning of this transition period that inflation's on the come down the fed's going to fight it back the world is normalizing supply chains are getting back to normal the only country in the world that cares about covid19 and lockdowns anymore is china and i think they're going to probably get over that soon enough um the world is, is normalizing uh consumers were locked up they got out their pent-up demand now their behavior is normalizing um fiscal policy is normalizing monetary policy is normalized everything's normalizing so we're on the normalization side of the cycle, meaning that I think we're in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning of this transition period. And come 2023, it's going to be back to a normal feeling, normal looking economy that's not paying back 
the weird pandemic aftershocks, you know? So that for me is, is the core of the thesis and why I think that the bear thesis, it doesn't make much sense because the bear thesis hinges on inflation being structural. And I just, I don't see that today. I don't, I don't <laughs> see that really at all. Let's talk about housing. Let's talk about housing. Okay. One of the biggest inflationary elements in the economy right now is, is housing. Um, mm-hmm. but we can fix that. There's so many cool and innovative projects coming out right now to fix the housing shortage. You have 3D printing. You have these boxable homes. You have these pre-built homes, these prefabs. Like there's so many cool projects and companies out there that are attracting a lot of investment dollars to ramp operations that can more quickly, more affordably, more scalably build homes and solve the housing shortage. And boom, fix the housing inflation problem. Fix the rent inflation problem. We have that today. We didn't have that in the 70s. So mm-hmm. uh, food inflation, right? Let's talk about food inflation. Vertical farming. We've talked about that in this, pod, this podcast before. Yep. That is a huge source of new food growth that we haven't tapped yet really at all. And we sure as heck didn't have back in the 1970s. So New technology providing a way to solve inflation. We talked about automation, talked about the labor market. Anywhere you're seeing heavy inflation these days, I'll give you a technology, a technology tool that can help you beat that mm-hmm. inflation. That's the difference between today and the 1970s. And that's why I remain very committed to this idea that inflation is on the way out. The market okay. doesn't believe it as much as I do. So the market is going. <laughs> Jing, 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 jing. I'm going to let the market do that because I really believe what I'm saying right now. Mm-hmm. Meaning that the market, as soon as more data comes in and more proof rolls in that this thesis may be right, the market will come mm-hmm. around to seeing that and then stocks drift higher and grow stocks lead that rally. So despite the June, July, August rally sort of fizzling out here and us, you know, the market action recently looking weak. I remain very bullish about an end of year rally in stocks for the reasons that I just laid out while fully acknowledging that the bear thesis may be right. But I think probabilities, you know, we have to operate in probability matrices. I think the probability mm-hmm. of the bear thesis coming to light is much lower than the probability of the bull thesis coming to light. Okay. Well, with your bullish outlook moving forward, I just want to get your take on two quick things. Uh, seasonality and rotations. You know, first off, September is traditionally an awful month for stocks. Should we fear the September sell-off? Yeah, no, hocus pocus, man. <laughs> hocus pocus. I, I don't believe in seasonality <laughs> at all. I, I think seasonality is a joke. Okay. I don't. I don't. Yeah. All right. Every every year is different. Every year is different. September okay. some years is great. September some years is bad. Um, I, some of the averages are skewed because September 08, uh, kind of that's when the Lehman bankruptcy sort of <laughs> spread across mm-hmm. the, the market and that destroyed a lot of things. September 01, um, that was 9-11, obviously, tragically, and that caused a massive market sell-off. So we, we've been just unfortunate with some bad things happening in September, um, mm-hmm. and that's why the – Stock market hasn't performed well in September. You have some really bad months. I can skew the average. But I don't think mm-hmm. seasonality is really a thing. Selling man, go away. Yeah, no, I, I don't believe in any of that stuff. Um, I think that the market's going to do whatever inflation tells the market to do. So I'm, I'm looking at inflation, mm-hmm. not seasonality. I think that's 
really overblown right now. Makes for a good headline. That's why you're seeing it everywhere. Makes for a great headline. Spooky September. <laughs> September swoon. Makes for great headlines, but I think it's hocus pocus. I wouldn't pay much attention to it. Okay. I'm also hearing that uh, hedge funds piled into growth stocks in Q2. Is that correct? Yeah, Aaron. So there, there was a bunch of data. It was Goldman Sachs or Bank of America. One of the big banks uh, reviewed a bunch of 13F filing data and uh, flow data and found that hedge funds uh, piled into growth stocks, rotated back into growth stocks in the second quarter of 2022 at the fastest pace and biggest pace they've done since 2013. And back mm-hmm. then, growth stocks were in the midst of a sell-off and then proceeded to rebound very strongly, about 30% over the next uh, 12 months, the Russell 3000 growth index, small cap growth specifically. So I think that what I'm seeing there is hedge funds betting kind of the way that that we're betting and saying that, okay, mm-hmm. inflation's probably peaked. The Fed, yeah, they're talking hawkish, but they're probably going to go dovish within the next 12 months because they can't. Something you have to understand here too, which is really understated, is the Fed just can't hike rates that much because mm-hmm. it wasn't just the stock market that got used to low rates. It was the entire global economy. I mean, Mm -hmm. post-2008, the U.S., Germany, France, U.K., China, Australia, Italy, Mexico, Canada, Brazil, all of Latin America, everybody across the globe with an economy gathered up a lot of debt because debt was cheap. Debt was almost free. So Mm -hmm. now, here we are in 2022, we are in a debt-fueled economy. Every government has a lot of debt. You cannot hike interest rates when every government has a lot of debt or else you're going to break the back of these economies, absolutely break their Mm -hmm. backs. You can't do that. So the Fed knows this. The ECB knows this. The Bank of England knows this. The PBOC, people think of China, knows this. These banks know, these bankers know this. So what they're doing is they're talking super tough right now. Mr. Tough Guy, Mr. Rambo, going to beat inflation, right? They're talking super tough right now because they don't want to have to hike rates that much in the future. They know that if they talk tough now, scare the S-H-I-T out of investors, out of consumers, out of people spending money, then they don't need to hike rates that much in the future because they're going to scare people so much now that that demand destruction is going to happen before they have to get rates up to four, five, six, seven percent. That's their game, and it's going to work. It's working. You're seeing mm-hmm. it. We see stocks go lower psychologically. That spills over into conversations with people and their spending habits. I've been talking with people. They were feeling really good in July and August. Now all of a sudden, like, oh, I'm really worried about the economy. I don't, you know, maybe I'm, I'm not going to go out to dinner tonight, but I, I, I'm feeling it. I'm seeing it, okay? <laughs> you're, you're seeing yields go up. You're seeing mortgage rates come back up. The, the financial conditions mm-hmm. are getting getting harder. They're, 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 mm-hmm. they're getting harder. So as a result of that, the Fed's t- t- tough talk, I conclude, is working. And that okay. tough talk working is so bullish for stocks in a 12-month window because if mm-hmm. the tough talk works now, that means they don't have to do tough action in six months. Tough mm-hmm. talk with a little action today means inflation dies in six months and you don't need tough mm-hmm. action in six months. That's their mm-hmm. game. 
And I think hedge funds are starting to see that. That's why they rotated back into growth stocks. Yes, maybe some of these hedge funds are selling now with this rally coming coming apart a little bit. But I think a lot of them are in it for the long haul or at least six to 12 months. And I think that growth stocks have a great outlook over the next six to 12 months because of the, the reasons I just laid out. Okay. Um, real quick, uh, that kind of sums up our topics, but I know that you launched a new product last week. I know you mm -hmm. wanted to talk about it real quick. So here's your shameless plug. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, sure. So as, as everybody knows, it's listening to this podcast. Um, I'm a long-term investor. I'm a long-term growth investor. I invest in very promising companies in the early innings of potentially massive growth. And then I just sit on those stocks and I sit and I wait for them to gain weight, gain clout, gain influence and for their sales and earnings to grow exponentially, which hopefully leads to the stock price growing exponentially as well. It's a long term strategy. It's a three, five, 10 year strategy. It doesn't pay attention to daily price movements. It pays attention to, to long term trends. And I think that's the best way to make money in the markets over a three, five, 10 year window. If you want to put in a thousand bucks today and make ten thousand twenty thousand thirty thousand forty thousand dollars in a multi-year window the best way to do that is with long-term growth investing buy and hold very promising companies in early stages of potentially disruptive and massive growth that's what i do but having mm -hmm. said that there mm -hmm. is no such you don't want to limit yourself as an investor you don't just want to do one thing and that's it that'd be like mm -hmm. really going into a bathroom basketball player be like me going to a basketball game and saying okay all i'm gonna do is shoot threes this game mm -hmm. i'm just gonna shoot three pointers that yep. makes me not that effective when the other team's in a two three zone and the three point shots are, are abundant i'm gonna score a lot of points because i can shoot a lot of threes but when the other team is playing man to man and really tight up on me and running me off the three-point line if i'm saying i'm only gonna shoot threes and i'm not gonna get many shots up that game the point being is defense has changed. So as a player, mm -hmm. I need to be able to shoot a three-pointer, drive, pass, rebound, play defense. I want to be a complete player. Same with investing. Defense has changed in mm -hmm. basketball. Market climates change. Macroeconomic climates change in the stock market, in the global economy. Mm -hmm. So you can't limit yourself to always being one type of investor all the time. And that's why I launched this new product. This new product is about keeping that long-term growth investing strategy. Having mm -hmm. 70, 80% of your portfolio tied up in these long-term stocks, buy and hold, let them gain weight, make huge amounts of money in them over a three, five, 10 year window. But mm -hmm. take another, the extra 20, 30% of that portfolio and put it into a system that I've created. We're calling a breakout mm -hmm. trader. And its whole purpose mm -hmm. is to inject short-term bursts of income into that portfolio. So you're making long-term okay. money and short-term money. And the way we do that with Breakout Trader is we design this algorithm that looks for, as the name would imply, stocks that are breaking out, breakout stocks. And the logic mm -hmm. behind this is something called stage analysis. And stage analysis okay. was developed in the 1980s. Stage analysis says that, okay, if you look at a stock, its behavior over its lifetime. Every stock essentially follows a very similar and predictable and repeatable pattern that goes through four mm -hmm. stages. One, a basing stage where the stock goes up, goes lower, goes up, goes lower, but ultimately goes nowhere. It kind of, it's trading mm -hmm. sideways. It's moving sideways. Okay. 
Stage two, it stops moving sideways and starts moving higher. It starts breaking out. Mm-hmm. Stage two, breakout. Stage three, eventually, not stocks don't go up forever. So then it stops going up and it starts going sideways again. That's a stage three top. Then eventually that top breaks down and stocks start falling. Stage four decline. It goes to a stage four decline, but stocks don't fall forever. They don't go up forever, they don't fall forever. So eventually the decline turns into a stage one base again, and we do the cycle all over. Stage, you know, sideways, up, sideways, down, sideways, up, sideways, down, sideways, up, sideways, down. Repeat, 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 repeat. That's stage analysis. What we've done is we've developed an algorithm to identify stocks going from a stage one base to a stage mm-hmm. two breakout. And we buy mm-hmm. stocks on the cusp of stage two breakouts and sell mm-hmm. them before they go into stage three tops. We only buy stocks that are breaking out. We only buy stocks that are going up. And it's designed mm-hmm. for a one, two, three month window where we're buying a stock here and three months later we're selling it three months into its breakout for mm-hmm. you know, 20, 30, 40% returns in that time period, if not larger. Some of the things we're looking at right now, I think you can do 100, 120% in three months. So we're seeing a lot of potential with this as a complementary trading strategy to our long-term investing strategy. Again, take 70 or 80% of your income, put it or in your portfolio, put it into these long-term growth stocks, and then take 20 or 30% and put it into these breakout stocks that are just boom, injecting income into your portfolio with these massive moves on short time frames. Now, of course, not all of these stocks are going to work out. Sometimes a breakout's a head fake and it's going to come back down, but you keep it tight. So every every time you're wrong, you lose maybe 5%. And every time you're right, you make maybe 50%. So the risk reward makes a lot of sense. You keep it tight. It's a trading system. And we have that system mm-hmm. down. So we just launched that product last week. And we're very mm-hmm. proud to say it's off to a great start. And we think mm-hmm. that there's a lot of upside potential for the stocks that we've already issued in there. We're going to continue to issue more buy alerts in there because it's a fast-paced product to complement our long-term investment <laughs> strategy. And I think together with these, we have the uh, back to basketball, the LeBron James of of investing in terms of a strategy where we have, you know, we're we're mm-hmm. we got our three-point shooters, we got our offensive machine mm-hmm. over here, and we got some defense here. We got we got a great strategy. So I think that. Everything is coming together nicely uh, for Mm -hmm. the product ecosystem. And I think that this breakout trader system is a perfect complement to a lot of of us listening to this podcast or long-term investors. Let's inject Mm -hmm. that long-term investing, give it a little boost with some Mm short-term trading. Why not? That's, That's the perfect strategy right there. Well, it sounds like an awesome product. Uh, for our listeners, you can head on over to InvestorPlace.com if you're interested. Uh, but summing it all out right now with some fan questions. Uh, Rob Norman, I'm hearing Powell wouldn't consider a rate hike six days before midterms. Thoughts? Um, yeah, he's definitely going to hike rates. <laughs> um, I don't – Powell – no. Powell's not going to play politics. Powell, okay. Powell is aware of the political microscope on top of him, and he's not going to play politics because if he does play mm-hmm. politics, he's going to get blamed for playing politics. He mm-hmm. should not be playing politics, and he knows he should not be playing politics, so he will not play politics. Um, I think he's going to hike rates very aggressively until inflation comes down, and then they're going to make a very abrupt pivot. 
people are thinking it's going to be this mm-hmm. kind of gradual thing. I think it's going to be very abrupt. I think they're going to go from super hawk, destroying mm-hmm. inflation, Rambo on inflation, to Gandhi on inflation. I think it's going to be like an overnight mm-hmm. shift because they're going to kill inflation until it's completely dead. And then they're going to go completely dovish and restore the economy. So I don't, you know, this whole talk about they're only going to hike in the midterms and they're going to stop hiking after. That may happen, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be because of politics. It's going to be because of the okay. inflation. If inflation stays hot, the Fed stays aggressive. If inflation cools, the Fed starts to cool. Pretty plain and simple. Okay. Uh Last question from Rusty Russ. Uh, Slaughterhouse again today. I'm at eight consecutive days red and almost completely lost all gains from June lows. Looking like two steps forward, one step back is not quite it right now. We're almost fully back to two month lows ago. Uh, What are your thoughts on this and the multiple predictions being thrown around for further declines on the way? New 52 week lows for Twilo and Shopify today, for example. Um. Okay. Uh, well, I think the first thing I'd like to say is two steps forward, one step back is happening for if you're invested in the right growth stocks. Um, our top 10 portfolio mm-hmm. in an in innovation investor uh, is up 43% from its June lows still. Um, so it's, it's up massively from the June lows. It, it's up big over the past month, uh, two months and three months. And I say, I said 43% from the, from the June lows. So, um, some stocks are making new lows from the June lows. Absolutely. But if you're in the right growth mm-hmm. stocks, that should not be the case. Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, I, I do think the two steps forward, one step back thing is, and you look at the broader market. Uh, NASDAQ's at 39.20. The low was, you know, 3,600 range. So definitely two steps forward, one step back is it right now. That's definitely happening. Uh, Looking at Shopify, yeah, Shopify's having trouble. I think e-commerce trends are are fading very quickly. It's not one of our top 10 portfolio holdings. So that, you know, like I said, right growth stocks is the name of the game here. Um, Twilio, they're also having a real tough time scaling back costs as they grow. A lot of people expected economies of scale there to kick in and for profits to start showing up now. They're not. In fact, net loss margins are not improving all that much. So that that's their problem. So the ones that we're, that we're mentioning and the ones that are making uh, new 52-week lows, they have problems specific to that company. Shopify, e-commerce okay. trends are failing. Twilio, having trouble with economies of scale. Um, yeah, Open Door, for example, that, that's one of the ones that's been performing very weakly. Uh, it's got that housing mm-hmm. market exposure. Everyone's worried about the housing market. Um, but then you look at a company like like Fluence, uh, energy storage company, and that's up 120% from its June lows. Um, <laughs> you look at a company, a lot of the clean tech names, a lot of the solar names, Solar Edge, mm-hmm. um, Array Technologies, uh, Shoals Technologies, a lot of those names are up massively. You look at the hydrogen names, uh, Plug Power, up massively from the June low. So uh, when we talk about two steps forward, one step back, that's happening for the whole market. And it's happening especially so for high-quality growth stocks. Again, top 10 portfolio for innovation investors up more than 40% from its June lows. Um, so that is two steps forward, one step back. Uh, we, we peaked out at 60%. 
and then just mm-hmm. above 60, come back down to 40. I think we kind of hover here, and then I think we can continue to go higher. We're calling for another 50% plus rally at the end of the year, and I think that that is what will happen. So two steps forward, one step back is this still the call we're making here. Again, not going to be true for all growth stocks, not going to be true mm-hmm. for all stocks, but if for the right growth stocks, it's going to be very true. Um, so okay. sticking with that call. All right. Nice. Uh, again, uh, great insights, as always, for our listeners and HGI investors. Uh, we covered a lot today, Luke. Uh, any last words before we wrap? Uh, no, Aaron, you know, just um, monitoring the market action. I just expect a lot of volatility over the next um, week until we get that September CPI print, at which point I think mm-hmm. some answers will arrive. And if those answers are good, you're going to see the cavalry show up on the bullish side. And if those answers are bad, mm-hmm see a stampede of selling. So I think all the trading you're going to get between now and then is noise. And all that's going to matter is what the print says in a week. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll definitely be back here to discuss that in a week. Uh, we want to thank everyone for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in our comments section. We'd love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and see if we can always answer any of your burning questions. Until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you next week. Bye, all.